Good morning, everyone. Today our Bible reading is from John chapter 6, and we're starting at verse 35 and down to the end of the chapter. So if you look in the Bibles in the pews, it's on page 866 of your pew Bibles. John chapter 6, verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I've told you, you've seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he'd said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one who has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father who sent me and I live... And, sorry, verse 57. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, this uh, morning we're going to continue our series on uh, John's Gospel in chapter 6. I actually am having to uh, assume that you've heard last week's sermon on John chapter 6 already. Uh, and I'm going back to John chapter 6 because there's a refrain that Jesus has that comes up three times. That's really important for us to understand Jesus and our salvation. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning. And so it's a, uh, I'm not going to go verse by verse as I usually do, but I'm going to jump around a little bit in the chapter because it's important for us to understand and appreciate this doctrine to, to fuel us with thanks and comfort and encouragement. And so why don't I pray for us as we uh, consider this passage this morning. Uh, Lord Father, we thank you so much that uh, in your mercy and in your love, uh, you send Jesus to live the life we can't, to die the death we deserve, and to rise to life so that he will be the giver of life to raise us up on the last day, to give us eternal life so that we might be with you forever. Uh, we pray, Lord, that as we uh, reflect on your word this morning, may you speak to us, may your spirit be at work in us, and may our thoughts uh, follow your thoughts. May our love for you increase, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now, have you ever wondered whether it would have been easier to believe in Jesus if you were born in the first century Palestine and happened to be one of the servants at the wedding of Cana and saw Jesus turn water into wine? Have you ever thought that your faith in Jesus would be so much stronger if you were in Galilee when the royal official asked Jesus to heal his son and you were the official's doctor? And you saw the fever leave the official's son at the exact moment Jesus said your son will live. Have you ever convinced yourself that unless you saw Jesus heal a paralytic and witness the lame pick up his mat and walk, then you'll be a Christian? Or maybe you have friends who have said to you, uh, if I was amongst the thousands that ate the bread and fish, and saw Jesus walk on water, then, then I'll become a Christian. Maybe that's why you think church attendance is dwindling in Australia, and less people are becoming Christians, because we're not seeing the miracles Jesus performed some 2,000 years ago. I mean, if, if only we could hear Jesus teach, if only he was still walking this earth, if only he could perform a miracle here at church this morning, then our church would be full to the brim. And more people will be saved. I mean, isn't that what God wants? That everyone believes in him, that everyone receives eternal life. It's up to everyone to be convinced. Doesn't God want everyone to be convinced? To be persuaded? To come to Jesus? If only God worked a bit harder, if God only met our needs and convinced us with some miracles today, with some better teaching today, then maybe our church would be full. Have you ever heard of such an argument? 
was an argument I often hear, a demand that I, that's often made. If, if I see Jesus perform a miracle, then I'll believe. Well, as we continue to study uh, John's gospel, what we'll see is that the crowds do in fact see and hear Jesus perform miracles and in fact experience it firsthand. But they don't believe. They don't put their trust in Jesus. Why is that? Well, let's find out. So last week, we saw thousands, maybe 20,000 people, the entire suburb of Camberwell, following Jesus. 20,000 people, 5,000 men, and then probably another 5,000 women, and maybe five or 10,000 children following Jesus. And we're told in chapter 6, verse 2, so please have your Bibles open and, and follow chapter 6 with me. Chapter 6, verse 2, they followed Jesus because they saw that he had healed the sick. They've seen a miracle. This is a miracle maker. Let's follow him. And, and when they're in the mount, mountainside and they don't have food to eat, Jesus feeds them from five loaves and two fish. And there are 12 baskets full of leftovers. It, it was a buffet of unlimited food. You, it's an all-you-can-eat for free. From the very hands of Jesus Christ himself, he was feeding the thousands upon thousands. You could eat so much that your tummy would be bursting. And if there were any Asians there, you'd see that their plates would be full of the seafood and no bread because you wouldn't fill yourself up with cheap bread. It would all be seafood. And so here you have thousands of people experiencing firsthand a miracle from Jesus' hand. And they were over the moon, not just because they had their fuel and their stomachs were full, but as we saw last week, Jesus was providing them 85% of their income. These people were spending 85% of their hard-earned income on bread, on sardines. But Jesus was providing for them absolutely free, all you can eat. Jesus was giving them security. Jesus was giving them life. And so they tried to force Jesus into politics and make him king by force in verse 15. But Jesus evades them and walks on water. But when they find him in verse 25, Jesus tells them in verse 27, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And so by the end of this episode, what would you expect? What would you expect to happen? What would the early church look like with Jesus walking the earth? Now, given our logic, if we could see Jesus perform a miracle or two, we'd believe in him. Our faith wouldn't be marred by doubt, but faith that could even move mountains, right? But what actually happens in this passage? Well, they don't come to him and believe in him. They don't accept his teaching. In fact, they turn their backs on him. So have a look at verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, if you're wondering what this hard teaching is, I explained it last week. So I'm not going to go over it again. But they hear Jesus teach about his body and blood. They, they hear him teach about how they must eat of him. And it's not referring to the Lord's Supper. It's referring to them coming to him, believing in him, accepting him and worshipping him as the son of God. But they don't do it. In fact, they say it's a hard teaching. Who can accept it? 
And so despite the fact that Jesus has just turned water into wine, healed an official son with his word from a great distance, despite the fact that Jesus commanded the paralytic to walk again, who, had, who couldn't walk for 38 years, it, despite the fact that Jesus had just fed the thousands upon thousands upon thousands and walked on water, the fact that Jesus did something that no one else could do but only God could do, what happens? Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You see, these disciples were disciples in name. They said, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you. But when things came their way, the teaching was a bit difficult. That was a bit confusing. They turned their back on Jesus. They weren't true disciples. And so we must take warning from this. To call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. Many people come to church, but they're not Christians. Many people were disciples of Jesus and followed Jesus, but they weren't true disciples. And so after a year or two of public ministry, how many people believe in Jesus? How many people are genuine disciples of Jesus Christ? How many people actually follow Jesus? Well, not even 12. Because one of the 12 is a devil. Have a look at verse 67. You don't want to leave two, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so they, they, Peter, on, on behalf of the apostles are saying, no, we do believe who you are. We have come to you. But then look at what Jesus says. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? And we have to remember that Jesus chose them. Yet one of you is a devil. He chose Judas knowing that he is a devil, that he will betray Jesus. Judas was chosen not because he would be saved, but because he would be a spy for the devil and betray Jesus to the cross. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. And so after a year or two of public ministry, Jesus' ministry looks like a complete flop, doesn't it? A total failure. A religious leader, uh, 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 the religious leaders hate him. The crowds want to use him as a vending machine. The disciples desert him, and even one of his closest friends end up betraying him. I mean, if you open up a cafe and uh, on a busy street like Swanson Street in the city, and thousands upon thousands of people pass your shop every day. And every day you go and open up your shop and there's graffiti on your door and death threats in the mailbox and only a dozen loyal customers come and, and order a coffee. You'd be devastated, wouldn't you? All that effort, all that investment, almost for nothing. Or if you ran a Bible study and every week you prepared the study, you cook dinner for everyone. You open up your home in love. But each week people come just to eat your food and not to study the Bible. They come to chat to each other but not to you. You'd be horrified and devastated that all the effort and love you pour out was almost for nothing. You, you, that, that sort of feeling that we might have if we were that cafe owner or that Bible study leader it is only a glimpse of the reception that Jesus received in his ministry. For after one or two years of public ministry, of healing and feeding and teaching, of love and compassion and kindness, all that Jesus has to show for in his ministry 
is hatred from the leaders of Judaism, of abandonment from his disciples who said that they would follow him, but then they turned their backs on him. All that Jesus has to show for his ministry after all this time of the outpouring of his love for them were 11 measly disciples who truly believed in him. And one amongst them was still a spy, a devil, who would betray him to the cross. I mean, how do you think Jesus would feel? How would you feel if you were Jesus? Well, Jesus doesn't feel knocked down or out. He doesn't start doubting God's mission. He doesn't become despondent and whinge and cry about it. In fact, he's not even surprised. And so, friends, if you're discouraged that our church is still a small church and only slowly growing, don't be discouraged, for Jesus is building his church. Though we're small, we're faithful. A church that believes in Jesus and loves him and his word. A church that obeys Jesus and loves one another. And so if Jesus wasn't phased when his ministry was small after years of ministry, of years of heartache, of years of pouring out his love, then we shouldn't either. And the reason it didn't bother Jesus might actually surprise us or even make us feel uncomfortable. But what I hope is that you'll find comfort in God's word this morning and encouragement in what he says. For Jesus knew all along that those who will believe in him and those who've seen his miracles or eaten his food, those who come to him and those who've heard his teachings and have convinced uh, uh, themselves of his, the soundness of the logic or the argument. No, those who come to him are those the Father gives him. Those who come to believe in Jesus are those the Father enables. And in case we missed it, Jesus actually says this three times in the passage. At verse 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I'll raise them up at the last day. And verse 65, he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me, no one can come to me, unless the Father has enabled them. Now, in theological speech, this is what we call the doctrine of predestination. It comes from the very lips of Jesus. Uh, and what it means is this. If you're a Christian, then you chose Jesus because God first chose you you chose jesus you believed in him because god enabled you to believe in him you came to jesus because god the father drew you to jesus that that's why in ephesians chapter 2 the apostle paul can say that even the faith we have in jesus is a gift from god so ephesians chapter 2 from verse 8 for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, that is, the faith you have is not even from yourself. The faith you have is the gift of God. God gives you the gift of faith so that you will believe in Jesus. If God doesn't give you the faith, you'll never believe in Jesus. And so God gives you the faith by 
a gift. It's given to you, not by works. You don't earn it so that no one can boast. That means without God choosing you and giving you faith to believe, you'll never believe in Jesus. And you'll never receive eternal life. The offer to come to Jesus is made to everyone. We see this in verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever, it's open to everyone. Anyone can come to Jesus. Everyone receives the invitation. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That is, everyone has the choice to come to Jesus. And to believe in him is an open and unconditional offer. And if you do, then you'll receive the bread of life. You'll never go hungry. You'll never be thirsty. But then notice what Jesus says in the very next verse, in verse 36, that even though the crowds have seen Jesus and experienced a miracle from his hand, they still don't believe. And that, that, that defies our logic. How could you not believe if you've seen a miracle and experienced it? But they don't. And Jesus explains it. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. Why? Because of verse 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. You see, the only reason someone will come to Jesus is if the Father enables them. The reason all these people who saw and witnessed the miracles didn't come to Jesus and believe in him is because the Father didn't draw them. And God the Father needs to make the first move. Because like we saw in Jesus' conversation in in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus last year, to become a Christian is to be born again of the Spirit. So verse 63, Jesus hints at that again here. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Now, I was born many, many moons ago. As my kids keep reminding me, I'm very old. I was actually born in Williamstown, uh, Williamstown Hospital, about, what, 20 k's from here. But according to my calculations, I was actually conceived in Indonesia uh, when my parents were refugees at a refugee camp there. My brother was born there, and based on my calculations, I was conceived there. I then went to Singapore while I was still in my mother's tummy, and from there, we came to Australia, and I was born in Melbourne. Now, I don't know about you, but I actually had nothing to do with my birth. I didn't decide to be conceived. I didn't nudge my dad. I didn't decide to be born. I didn't even exist. My parents made that decision and gave me life. And that's the nature of life, isn't it? You have nothing to contribute to it. It's given to you. You're given life. You're birth life. And just as parents give life to us in the flesh, so it is up to God to give us life in the spirit. Because the Bible tells us that we're dead to sin. We don't love God or know God. We, we've rebelled against him. We don't want to live for him. We want to live for ourselves. And so without God being the first mover, unless God chooses to give birth to us, as it were, in the spirit, to call us out of darkness and into his light, no one will be born again. It's impossible. It's impossible for you to have given birth to yourself. 
And so it is impossible for us to give birth to ourselves in the Spirit. So unless God gives us faith to believe in Jesus, no one ever will, just like the crowds, believe in Jesus. Because just like the crowds, we want to worship God on our own terms. We want, to, we, we want a God who does our bidding. A God who listens to us. A God who does what we want. And so we want him to be our king in verse 15, like the crowd. To guarantee our security and food supply. To play politics and protect us. But not to die on a cross. We want a, a, a God who, who we can... Uh, earn our salvation through in verse 28 and not accept salvation by grace alone. We, we want a God who's like a genie in a bottle in verse 30 to do more signs and perform more miracles at our command and not point us to the word of God in scripture. But above all, verse 42, like the crowd, like the religious leaders, we think we know Jesus. We think we know God. We think we know better. And so we don't need to listen to Jesus or God. We don't believe that he's come from heaven. He's just another human being, Joseph's son. You see, throughout this entire story, even though Jesus feeds the thousands and walks on water, the crowds don't believe in Jesus because he doesn't fit into their worldview. And so they grumble, the leaders grumble in verse 41, the disciples grumble in verse 61. And why do people grumble? Because they don't like what they hear and they hate what they're told. They want Jesus to fit into their belief system so that they can control Jesus, they can contain Jesus, they can understand Jesus, but Jesus doesn't. And they frustrate, they're frustrated by it. It's like trying to fit a square peg in a round circle, in a round hole, and so they leave. They, they had a choice to believe in Jesus or not believe in Jesus, and they chose not to believe in Jesus. They turned their backs on him. You see, just like the crowds, we have a choice. We can believe in Jesus or not. And the invitation is open to everyone. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says. But it's also true at the very same time that unless God first chooses us, our choice will always be to reject Jesus and not believe in him. The heart is an idol factory. We won't believe in the God who has revealed himself in Jesus. We will make up another God and fit God into it. And Jesus is saying, you can't do that. No matter how many miracles we see and experience, we'll never believe in Jesus and receive eternal life unless the Father draws us to Jesus. And he draws us to Jesus by his word. Have a look again in verse 63. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and truth. See, you see, the words are full of the Spirit and truth. The words of Jesus go out with the power of the Spirit to give you life. Just as God spoke creation into being from nothing, so God speaks life into those he has chosen. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. And no one can believe in Jesus without believing the words of Jesus. For it is his word that gives the spirit of rebirth and life. Now, how are you going with this doctrine? 
It's pretty heavy, isn't it? Now, the reality is that the natural response as we hear and understand and seek to grasp this doctrine is that it sounds completely unfair. It's how I felt when I was first taught it, when I was a university student at Melbourne University, and I just thought, that's, that's baloney. How could that be? How can God choose to save some but not others? Well, let me illustrate to help you see that it's not actually unfair for us, but in actual fact, it's unfair for God. So imagine President Joe Biden, the President of the United States, the most powerful man in the free world. He, despite his lack of memory, decides to adopt a child or two. But for him to do this, for some reason or other, just go along with me, he has to disinherit Hunter, his son. His son will not be part of his life anymore. His son will not receive the benefits of his dad being president. Hunter will be cut off from the family. But Biden decides to go ahead with it anyway. He disinherits Hunter and cuts him off from the family. At great cost to himself and of his own son, Biden chooses to adopt not just anyone, but he chooses to adopt his enemies. And so what he does is that he goes to the Middle East. He goes uh, to a Muslim orphanage run by an Al-Qaeda terrorist cell. And of course, as you will know, that the Al-Qaeda's hate America and hate everything that America stands for. And at this orphanage that's filled with hatred towards him as the president and America, Biden sees hundreds of impoverished children. And he decides to adopt two of them. And these two kids hear Biden's voice and follow him willingly. And even though from a very young age they've been indoctrinated in their Qaeda way, they give it up and follow Biden back to the state. So Biden gives them the life they could never have. They become American citizens. They live in the White House. They get to hang out at the Oval Office and call the most powerful man on earth, Dad. Now, was it unfair that Biden chooses to adopt two kids? Is that an unfair thing to do? Is it unfair that Biden would give life to two orphans who could never earn their way out of that terrorist cell. No, it's not, it's not unfair. It's grace. Biden brings them out of poverty, out of a life of hatred and terrorism because of his love and his grace and his mercy. And, and, and here we have the first mover. Biden must be the one who makes the decision. To go there, to make the decision to adopt two children, undeserving children, and all the kids had to do was to receive Biden's offer freely and willingly. And for all the other children in the orphanage, do you think that they will be screaming, this is unfair? 
this is unfair. No, they wouldn't be screaming, this is unfair. They'll be like, kill him, kill him. We hate America, we hate Biden, we hate all that they stand for. They will still be chanting their terrorist ways. They're not saying, oh, it's unfair. They're saying, those two kids, they've lost their mind. Why would they go? You see, these kids in the orphanage might be thinking, man, I wish I could live at the White House. I I wish I had the riches of America. I wish I had the luxuries of Biden. But that would just be like the crowds of the day when Jesus fed the thousands. They wanted bread. They wanted security. They wanted income, but they didn't want Jesus. You see, often what we want is what God offers, but not God himself. In fact, what's unfair is that Hunter, his son, is disinherited and cut off from the family so that Biden could adopt two undeserving children. That's unfair. You see, when we learn of predestination, our gut instinct is to scream unfair because we think we deserve God's blessings when we actually don't. And we scream unfair because we think God is cruel and nasty when he's not. We scream unfair because we want all that God has to offer in life and love, but we don't want God, and we don't want to obey his son, Jesus. That is, we think more highly of ourselves and more deserving of ourselves than we ought and less of God than we should. When we scream unfair, it's our self-centeredness that comes out because we see from our perspective of what we think we deserve and not from God's perspective and what it costs him to save some. To save his enemies. For the wages of sin is death. And so it cost him his son on the cross to save some. You see, when we truly grasp the doctrine of predestination, we realize that without it, none of us could be saved. We'd all be kids in a terrorist cell who hate God and everything he stands for. But instead, by his grace, at the cost of his son, his one and only son, he would choose to save some. So friends, let me encourage you to meditate on this truth. For if you do, it will fill your hearts with thanks, with comfort, and with encouragement. With thanks because at heaven's gates, you won't be patting yourself on the back and congratulating yourselves for being good enough or smart enough or clever enough for believing in Jesus. For you'll be filled with thanks to God the Father for choosing to save a wretched sinner like yourself. That he would give you the faith to put your trust in Jesus. This doctrine will give you comfort. For if we have come to Jesus and believe on him, then we know it's only possible because, it's not because we tried hard enough or worked hard enough, but because God enabled it. God made it possible. God gave us the faith. And so if you're struggling with your faith and you're filled with doubt, you're scared that you might be turned away at heaven's gates and you're not sure if you're good enough for God, then remember Jesus' words in verse 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And so, friends, if you've come to Jesus, this is his promise. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Isn't that wonderful? And third, with encouragement. 
Now, I told you that uh, we've got a hall there. It's called Manly Hall. And beyond Manly Hall is basically a lawn. It's empty. Now, if I told you that there is gold there, if you dig extensively enough and deep enough and for long enough, you will strike gold. And the gold that you'll find there is so pure and uncontaminated, it is worth millions upon millions. There's just so much that you couldn't even use it all in 10 lifetimes. And so what would you do after this service if that was true? You'd be like, oh, hi, 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 I've got to run, right? And you'd be there with a shovel and you'd start digging because you know that you'll strike gold. And in a similar way, Jesus tells us that God has chosen to save some. And those some are here, those some are out there in the world. And they're worth more than gold. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're members of the family of God. They're the people that you spend eternity with. And I'm sure some of those people that God has chosen to save, who have not yet come to Jesus, is because they haven't heard God's word. Or they haven't heard God's word over and over again until the penny drops for them, until God opens their eyes, until God enables them, until God gives them the faith. But they're waiting for you to share the gospel with them. And I'm sure some of these people are in your family. I'm sure some of them are your friends at school. Some of them are your colleagues at work. And so the doctrine of predestination should encourage us to invite people to church so that they might hear the word of God and receive the spirit that will give them rebirth. To evangelize and share the gospel, to tell people how wonderful our Savior is. For as we do it more and more extensively enough, deep enough, long enough, some will believe and receive eternal life. Now I know this doctrine of predestination might do your head in. And it might be the first time you've been taught it. But hopefully you can see that it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. It's in scripture, and in fact it's all through scripture. But if you're a Christian, and I'm taking a pun here, and say that even if you've never been taught this doctrine, you've always believed this doctrine. Maybe even without realising. And I know this because when, someone wants, when you want someone to become a Christian, what, what is the most important thing you can do? What is the most important thing that you do do? It's not memorizing scripture so that you can, you know, flip from chapter to chapter and point people to all these sorts of verses. I mean, that's a great thing to do, but it's not that, is it? It's not going to a Bible college and taking an apologetics class, is it? Brushing up on your arguments on the existence of God. That's a good thing to do, but that's not it, is it? It isn't strategizing with the parish council and coming up with really great strategies for outreach and, and getting world-class music into your service. That, that they're nice things to do, but that's not it, is it? The most important thing you can do and the most important thing we do do when we want someone to become a Christian is that we pray. And why do we pray? We pray because we believe that God saves God's the one who will convert. God's the one who will enable them to come to Jesus, to believe in him, to give them the faith. You see, God's the one who has to make the first move, and so we go to God. 
God's the one who draws people to Jesus, enables them to believe in Jesus. And so, friends, why don't we pray? That God will save those he has chosen and that he'll comfort us knowing that God, Jesus will never let us go. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he is the bread of life. We thank you that for many of us you have given us the faith to believe that we have come to Jesus, that we believe on him, that we have received eternal life. And we pray, Father, to you because you're the one who has chosen to save some. And so we prayed for those in our family, at work and school, our neighbours, our friends and family, that you would encourage us to share not just our lives but the word of truth to them. That as they hear the gospel, that you would impart in them faith to believe, that you would regenerate them and give them new life by your spirit. Father, we pray, Lord, that you will continue to help us to listen to Jesus and not to box you into an idol, but to worship you and serve you as you revealed yourself to us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.